All right. We have assignments due. Uh, homework four is due today. So that'll be due if you've given it to me already or submitted on D2L. That's great. If not, uh, make sure I get a copy of that either in class or submitted afterwards. Uh, the iTunes quiz is available through this weekend. You can take that anytime through uh, Monday the 14th. So it'll be due Tuesday the 15th at 6, six o'clock. Um, quiz 4 scheduled still for in class on October 16th. And right now we're on schedule to get there to do that. Just right, That'll be the last 10 or so minutes of class on the 16th. Second article review coming up on Friday. And that will be, uh, you can use one of the other articles. You can use one of those lists of articles I gave you. You can use a different one. Don't use the same one again. You know, write a different review, look at a different article, but you can use another one of those again. And then homework five. Yay, right? Okay. Since homework four is due and I won't see you guys on Monday, nobody come in on Monday, right? Take the day off, enjoy, relax. Catch up, sleep, whatever, whatever you need, whatever is going to help you for the second half of the semester. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're driving all the way down to York. <laughs> One, two. There we go. All right. D don't 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 go crazy over the equation. I will be going over a little bit of that afterwards. There is an equation and a calculation for number two. Um, so I will go over that and discuss that a little bit in class between today and between today and Wednesday. All right. Questions? Okay. Yes. It's going to cover chapter 10 on the HR diagram. And I will make sure I will make sure I go over all the material before that is due. Okay? Now I'll give those out afterwards. And I've given the exams back, so I will give you, um, I'll get anyone who came in later, I'll get you those during the lab section. I'll get you the lab, the exams, and or the uh, observations back at that point. Yes? No. I didn't mark anyone late, that's why there's no line drawn on there. Yeah. No, I didn't count anybody as late today. So, no matter, as long as they get here, they're fine. All right. Picture of the day for today is a spiral galaxy. Looks like a beautiful spiral galaxy, doesn't it? Not really. Um, actually looks a lot like our Milky Way. If you've ever seen a picture of the Milky Way, our Milky Way doesn't look all that different than that. This is just a galaxy that we're happening to see edge on. So if you drew a spiral galaxy on a piece of paper, Normally, you see those beautiful ones with the big grand spiral arms, you're looking at it this way. This one, you just happen to be looking at it edge on. So you're looking at the edge and seeing the very thin part of that spiral galaxy. So that's what our galaxy looks like because we are, in our galaxy, we're located out about here someplace. So when we look out and see our galaxy, we essentially see it edge on as well. That's one of the things in astronomy. You can't just go and explore. I want to go study the galaxy or I want to go study this other galaxy. I only get to see this one particular view. You know, if I want to study something in a physical physics lab or a chemistry lab, I can turn it around and look at it from all different sides and do all kinds of things like that. I can't spin the galaxy around and go look at it. I can't go travel around. You know, travel, this one was how many millions of light years? Hundred? about 100,000 light years in size. That's the size of it, 50 million light years away. So we'd have to travel 50 million light years just to travel, just to go and look at this from a different point of view. Not something that technologically we can really do. Uh, we're not even close to being able to, to do that. So when we try to study galaxies, and that's what we'll be coming up to in a few chapters here, we have to use you know, statistics. We've got to look at all the different galaxies and see what we see one we see, some, we see a bunch that are face on, we see some that are tilted a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more, all the way down to edge on, and then take that and put all that information together to really find out what the galaxies are, what the galaxies are like. So this is just one example of the way we can see of the way we can see a galaxy. This one we happen to see edge on 
Uh, others we happen to see face on. That's when you get the nice pretty ones with all the nice beautiful spiral arms. The stars that you see in that are all part of our own galaxy. So most of these stars that you see, oops, I try to break things. Most of the stars, all the stars that you see here are all part of our own galaxy. There are some other more distant galaxies that happen to be located in this same direction. There's one up there you can see stretched out. There's a little one down in here and there's probably a couple others scattered around. You can see any little fuzzy patches that just don't quite look like a star are actually even more distant galaxies than this one that just happen to be located in that same direction in the sky. Questions? Okay. I do have extra credit assignments that I promised you. I think I'm going to hold off and give them to you next week when I have a bigger class here unless people get in and I'll give it. I just don't want to have to explain them and then explain them to 10 more people individually. Well, well, there we go. <laughs> you know what? If on a regular day I could see doing that, but when it's like this and you have to detour around and up through things in the dark like I had to in the dark where I don't know Harrisburg all that well. So. People are only not here because they want a five day weekend. Well, that could, that could be too. That could be too. So. Well, don't worry. The lab, if they're missing the lab we're doing, it's going to be a fun lab to make up if you're not doing it in class. It's doable, but it's just much better if I'm here to explain it. If you're not getting my explanations for it, it'll be a lot harder lab. So they're getting penalized that way. I'm sorry? The, di the HR diagram? Yeah. That's what we're going to be doing today. You're doing graphing. So. All right. So I do have those papers. I will give them to you probably on Wednesday then, unless we get you know, a flood of you know, most of the rest of the class in by the lab time. Boy, they're just taking the long weekend, I know. All right, let's go ahead and get started. And we're on to the HR diagram, which we'll be spending today and Wednesday pretty much on. Although I'll go, I'll do a little bit on the HR diagram today, then I'll go on to a couple other topics. And then I'm going to come back and do a separate uh, lecture on just the HR diagram on Wednesday before the quiz. So what we were looking at last time was uh, HR diagram, the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, named after two astronomers who sort of independently came up with this idea of trying to find out some of the patterns in the stars. What are the patterns in their properties? And two of the properties that we can measure relatively easy are the temperature. We just need to look at the color of the star, the spectral class of the star, that's all the same. So if we can measure the spectral class of the star, look at its spectrum. If we can measure the temperature of the star, we can determine one property of the star. And then we can determine the luminosity. Luminosity relative to the sun. So there's our sun, one solar luminosity. How about these stars that are 100 times brighter? Aren't too many on this graph. How about the stars that are 100 times fainter or 10,000 times fainter? We see a whole bunch of them. Now that's because we're looking at just a grouping of 80 stars and just the stars that are closest to us. So really what this gives us is a much better picture of what stars are really like than when you go out there and look in the sky. You see all those unusually bright stars? Those are the rare ones. Those are really unusual. Those ones that were, we saw on the first chart, we saw some that were way up here that were tens of thousands or 100,000 times brighter than the sun. They're extremely rare. They're not the average everyday star. A better, better, idea, better idea, better way to get them is just to take the 80 closest stars, just the stars that are right around us, and look at those. So really, the stars tend to be much smaller. Our sun is really a very big star. And in fact, of those 80 stars closest to us, one, two, three, four, are actually brighter than the sun. All the rest of those 80, 75, the other 75 are all smaller and fainter than the sun. So our sun is really one of the bigger and brighter stars in the sky, but still not much compared to those really biggest ones, those very, very rare ones. Now when we graph them, when we plot them like this, we find that there are patterns. They don't just fall all over the graph. You don't get any stars, in this case, you don't see too many stars showing up down here. You don't see anything yet showing up in here. We'll start to see some more, a uh, little more detail on this coming up. But what you find is that most of the stars, the vast majority of them, fall along a main, what we call the main sequence. And that runs from the upper uh, left-hand side down towards the lower right. And we see that a lot of the stars will fall on there. 
Not too many right up in here. Don't see any stars up here. You don't see them right down here. They tend to fall right along this line. So that there seems to be a relationship between how hot a star is and how bright it is. And we're going to use that in a little bit. It's actually going to be a way we can use to determine distances if we can figure out how bright a star really is. The other things that we see here are the white dwarf stars. White dwarfs are the compact core of a dead star. So they're extremely hot. You can see the temperatures. These white dwarfs are 10, 20, 30,000 degrees. Much, much hotter than our sun. But they're extremely faint. So very, very hot, but very faint tells us that they have to be tiny. right? Because if they were big stars, they'd be very, very hot. They'd be incredibly bright. Because they're not, because they are so faint, it tells us that they are tiny. And in fact, these stars are about the size of the Earth. Question, sir. Yes? I know that you said you were going to talk about these in the chapter ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. You're talking about white dwarfs. Mm -hmm. And they're considered stars are like neutron stars. Are they considered stars? Because they're yeah. both remnants. They're both remnants of stars. They're not, depending on how you want to define a star, they're the remnants of a star. They're, they're often called white dwarf stars, but if you want to really consider a star to be something that is producing energy by nuclear reactions in its core, which is typically our definition of it, then technically they're not stars. They're the remnant of a star. So, so they are, they are considered or are not considered stars? Neutron they're, they're often called stars, but they're technically not. under the definition, no, they're not a star. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. By brightness, you mean what we see in the visible spectrum? By Brightness? Yeah, uh, Luminosity can actually, it depends. Typically in the visible part of the spectrum, there are luminosity measures that actually measure the entire. Wouldn't those white dwarfs be really be, have a good sense of it if they're taken in the infrared spectrum? Actually, no. They'd be, they'd be worse in the infrared. They'd be better in the ultraviolet because of their high temperatures. They're very hot, so the white dwarfs are actually emitting a lot more uh, ultraviolet radiation. But yes, you would want to look across the entire spectrum. But really, for most of the stars here, these are going to be primarily in, emitting in the infrared. These are going to be primarily emitting in the ultraviolet. You take all that into account when you really determine the whole luminosity. It's not just that little portion. It's really across the entire. You can take it across the entire spectrum. All right, well, let's look at another one. Here's a different HR diagram. About the same number of stars, the 100 brightest stars. So we still see the main sequence up here. A lot of the stars still following the main sequence. But we notice now something different about our sun. Now instead of our sun being one of the brightest stars, it's now the faintest. Among the 100 brightest stars in the sky, which includes our sun, it's actually the faintest of them. You'll see a couple of these that repeat. Sirius, Altair, Procyon, Alpha Centauri are the ones that were on from last time. They're actually close and bright. Most of those other stars are all much further away. So we don't normally, you wouldn't see, you don't see many of these stars very close. Now you start to see that there are some other areas of the diagram that starts to fill up, that there are some areas up in here, what we call the red giant region, labeled up in here. Actually, red giants and even red supergiants when you get up to the top, top portion of this. So we begin to see some other groupings, but there's still, we're going to see, when we put the whole thing together, we're going to see that there's some patterns and there are big areas of this diagram where stars don't tend to fall. So stars only seem to fall around certain portions of the HR diagram. So it ends up, what we, look, what we learn about this is the different stages of life of the stars. So most stars are on the main sequence. That's where they live most of their life. That's where our sun is right now. And those are the stars that are producing energy, much like the sun is at this point, fusing hydrogen into helium, as we talked about in the last chapter. But other things happen when the sun runs out of hydrogen. Right? It's got some limited supply. Yeah. It's, it goes into, uh, it starts burning helium mm -hmm. instead of uh, its normal fuel, and then it gets hotter. Right? It'll, the core will get hotter. The core will get hotter, but the outer layers will cool off. So will it actually move on that diagram? It will move on that diagram. If you were to plot the sun here 5 billion years from now, 6 billion years from now, instead of being here, it would actually be up in this range. 
It will actually slowly move. Slowly moving not mean it's moving physically in space, but mean its temperature is changing. It's going to get cooler, but it's also going to get bigger, tremendously bigger, so it's going to actually shoot up towards this portion of the, into the red giant range. So it'll physically change its temperature and its luminosity. Again, you've got about 5 billion years to wait before that's going to happen. But that's what the, some of these other stars, some of these other stars have already gotten to that stage. Some of these stars have already moved into the red, gi red, giant, red giant phase. Cooled off significantly if they were over here. They've cooled off a lot and gotten much, much larger. That's what these kind of dashed lines are showing you. This one right here going through the sun is the radius of the sun. Means that these star any star on that line would be about the radius of the sun. Stars up here would be about 10 times bigger, 100 times bigger. So you can sort of see as you get up towards this upper right corner, the stars get bigger and bigger. So as you get things out here, you're getting thousands of times, going to be thousands of times bigger than the sun. But we're seeing two different things. We looked at one set of stars that were nearby. We looked at another set of stars that are bright. You probably recognize more names. You're likely to recognize more names here. There's Betelgeuse, there's Rigel, uh, Vega, some of the brightest stars in the sky. You didn't recognize too many names on the other one, probably. And most of them weren't named in any case because they're very small, very faint stars. So we're starting to see giant stars appear. So giant stars much bigger than, much bigger than the sun. Then if we put them all together, take 20,000 stars. So go ahead and catalog all these stars. Measure their spectral classes. The easiest way to get the temperature is to look at their spectral class, to look at their spectra and determine where they fall along this OBAFGKM range. So that's most of the stars, about 90% of them. So 9 out of every 10 stars falls on the main sequence here. Red giant range is about 10%, well 9%. And there's a few white dwarfs down there. You'll see a few that are scattered around. Could be measuring errors. Could actually be there's some stars that are in the transition region moving from one to another. But most of the stars we'll find are right on this main sequence or in the red giant range. That counts for 99% of the stars. Add in the white dwarfs and really that's just about everything that we see. Blue giant would be very, very, very small portion. Um, it would be, you know, you're getting rounding errors in that. So less than a, much less than a percent, fraction of a percent. In fact, some of those blue giants are actually classified as main sequence stars. It depends on where they are. Some of these are actually sometimes classified as blue giants, even though technically they're on the main sequence. Yes? So that one like the bottom left is like a... This would be a white dwarf. white dwarf. Yeah. That would be a white dwarf, anything down here. These would be something else. Something else would be going on here with these ones that are occurring here. They could be in the process of transitioning to a white dwarf. They could be some, there could be something else that's unusual about them because they're much too hot for their brightness. So they're probably in a transition phase, and if you could come back in thousands of years, they'd probably be go they'd probably be gone. So that one is like really hot, but like not bright. Really hot, but not very bright at all. So if you're a really, really hot star and not very bright, you have to be incredibly tiny because you've got all this energy being put out, but you don't have very much surface area putting out that energy. So it's going to look very, very faint to us when we see when we see it. So that's something that's about the size of the Earth. So, and really what it is, it's the leftover core of a star like the sun. So its outer layers get sp spread out into space, some of those nebulae that we've seen pictures of. And what's left over is the core, very hot core, compacted down to the size of the Earth. Essentially compressing the atoms as close together as you possibly can. Right? You've got electrons pushing against each other. Remember, negative charges repel, right? just like positive charges. So if you squish down under gravity and push things closer and closer together, Eventually, those electrons get so close that they start pushing back. It gives you a way to hold up that star. Right? There's no energy being produced, so there's no nuclear reactions to keep it supported. There has to be something that supports it against gravity. In this case, it's the pressure of the electrons pushing against each other. Right? You don't want to push those negative charges. don't want to go any closer together. You get them as close as they possibly can. If you do that, you can take something, the mass of the sun, and squish it down to the size of the Earth. Taking just all you're doing is taking out that empty space between the atoms. So you can imagine how much you could, you know, crush everything on Earth down to, you know, crush the Earth down to very tiny size if you could get rid of all that empty space. 
to get rid of all the space within the atoms, you make it even smaller. You can really, really make it tiny then if you get all the space within the atom, if you get rid of those electrons. All right, well, I am going to come back afterwards and go over the HR diagram in a little bit more detail. So I'm going to jump out here and we're going to look at a couple other things, finishing up chapter 10, and then I will come back to that. Um, first thing is measuring distances. So, oh, sure, go ahead. Yeah. Homework four should cover. Oh, I don't have a copy of it. Chapter ten, I believe it. Uh, I believe it. And I don't have a copy of it here, so I can't. I can't tell you off the top of my head. It mi- I thought it covered chapter ten. I thought it covered nine and ten. So you might actually do nine and ten and ten and eleven. Oh, you got it for me. Thank you. Did I give you? Th- I didn't give you the same questions at least, did I? Yeah, it is 10 and 11. You're gonna, there's, there's two sections of 10 because really I'm doing 10 and then I'm going to go back and do the HR diagram. So this, the second part is really covering more on the HR diagram section. And the other one covers the general chapter. So yes, you're going to have chapter 10 on both of these, on both of these two. All right, so distances. Uh, we talked about distances in terms of parallax. Remember parallax, shifting, right? As I move across the front of the room, the people in the front of the room, appear in a different position relative to the back of the people in the back of the room. That's the shift that we can measure uh, in six month intervals looking at the Earth on one side of the Sun. Six months later we're on the opposite side of the Sun and we've shifted and we can look for that shift in the stars. The next, the next method that we use is spectroscopic parallax. Okay, spectroscopic parallax, which is nothing to do with parallax. Even though it says parallax in its title, it has nothing to do with stars shifting their position. It has to do with parallax because it's a spectroscopic method of measuring the distance. So it's really a method of measuring the distance. So par- even though it has parallax in its name, it has nothing to do with parallax itself as we talked about before. But it does use spectroscopy in order to figure out the distances. And essentially what you're doing, three steps are given here. You measure the star's apparent magnitude and the spectral class. Hopefully sounds familiar. That's how we get things on an HR diagram pretty much. Those are two very easy numbers to determine. Spectral class, all you got to do is take a spectrum of the star, compare it to other stars, find out what its spectral class is. Relatively easy to do, so that gives us its temperature essentially. And then we measure the star's apparent magnitude. That's easy. That's how bright it appears to be in the sky. So you get a little photon counter pointed at the star and count how many photons are coming from it every second and figure out its magnitude. So you can actually measure those two very easily. Then you can use that spectral class that you just determined. I'll be back here in a second. But you can use that spectral class to figure out how bright it is. Figure out what the luminosity is. So if you know what spectral class is, here it's a star like the Sun. Well, it's, so, it's going to be so bright. If you have a star a little bit fainter, well it falls on the main sequence here. How bright is it? You can use this diagram then to determine the luminosity, how bright that star really is, how much energy it is actually putting out. So you measure the temperature and you use that to get a luminosity. Is it perfect? No. Right? This isn't, if I say it's exactly, uh, let's do a good one, let's do here about 8,000 degrees, right about halfway in between. Well, where does it fall in that range? There's a pretty big range there as to where the main sequence is. So you have to estimate you know, an average there. Well, what is the average luminosity? Where is this star going to actually fall? But you can get a pretty good estimate. It might be off by a little bit. might be off by a factor of 2, 50%. It might be off by 30%. But it's still the only method you got. If it's the only way you've got to determine these distances, you're kind of, you're kind of stuck. You have to use what we, ha- what we have. So. That's what the method is, is again, you measure the apparent magnitude, get that, get the spectral class, 
Use the spectral class to estimate the luminosity or the absolute magnitude, another way of doing it. And use the inverse square law then to find the distance. Now I've given you the equa- an equation for this on your next homework, which said that little m minus big M is, what is it, 5 log, how did I write it, 5 log of over 10 parsecs. Something like that. Yuck, right? We don't want to see that. No, it won't be on the test. But what this is, is this a way, is a way to look at, is to figure out the distance. These are the two things you're actually measuring. So you measure this, let me change colors here. Little m is the apparent magnitude. How bright does something appear to be in the sky? That's very easy to get. Big M is the absolute magnitude. And that is how bright it would be at 10 parsecs away. So if you could take any object, move it 10 parsecs away, and determine how bright it would appear to be, that would give us its absolute magnitude. It's good because this gives us a direct comparison of stars. If you can measure their absolute magnitude, you can directly compare them. And say, you know, what star is really brighter? It's not just that it's, if this one's a thousand light years away and this one's ten light years away, so one looks a lot brighter because it's so close. It takes out the distance effect. So if you measure these, you get this from your HR diagram, right? You measure your spectral class and your spectral class tells you how bright it is. Tells you that luminosity. Then you can solve for the distance. Still yucky, right? Um, Do one example here. Let me give you one example. Let's say we had a star with an apparent magnitude of, well, let's just say 5. So, looks like it's one of the fainter stars in the sky. It has an absolute magnitude of 0. Okay, absolute magnitude is zero. Much brighter, absolute magnitude is much brighter than the apparent magnitude. Then what you take is five for little m minus zero for big M is equal to five I did I did easy numbers, right? Five minus zero is five. So do it in steps here for you. So if you want to keep that when you look at the one on the homework. Now we want to divide by 5. So 5 divided by 5 is 1. Now you've got to get rid of that logarithm. Inverse log, or the easiest way, other way to do it is it's 10 raised to that power. So to inverse log, you're really raising 10 to that power. So this would be the same as 10 to the first or take, put 1 in and do inverse log on a scientific calculator. You'll find it'll give you the same answer. So 10 to the first power is 10, right? 110. One um, so this is 10. Again, I'm putting a bunch of steps in there for you. And now we want to solve for the distance, or we find out that this star is actually 10 times 10 or 100 parsecs away, about 300 light years away. We know it has to be far away because its apparent magnitude is much fainter than its absolute magnitude. If these two are equal, then we'd know it would be exactly 10 parsecs away. If the apparent magnitude and absolute magnitude are exactly the same, then you're going to solve this and you're going to find your distance is exactly 10 parsecs. Because that's how we define the absolute magnitude. That's what we've used as our reference distance. If you find one that is much brighter, if you find a star where this is the op- where the opposite is the case, where M is that's a good M. Try again. Where M is 10 and big M is still 5, say. Or sorry, it's 5. So now we have a star that looks a lot fainter than it should if it were at 10 parsecs. I just did the same one. I wanted to do that the other way around. Sorry. Let's do that the other way around. Let's say its apparent magnitude is 0 to switch the two numbers. 
but its absolute magnitude is 5. Now it looks a lot brighter than it should. This has to be an incredibly close star in order for it to look brighter than it would if it were 10 parsecs away. You can do the same calculation. The only thing you're changing in it is you're switching the 0 and the 5. So instead of 5 minus 0, you have 0 minus 5. Now it's negative 5. Negative 5 divided by 5 is negative 1. Again, inverse log or 10 to the negative first power. 10 to the negative first power? 1 tenth. So 1 tenth is, or the distance is, 1 parsec, about 3 light years away. So this would be closer to Alpha Centauri. Alpha Centauri is a little bit further away than this, but this would be close to the conditions that Alpha Centauri would have. It's a lot brighter than it would be if it went 10 parsecs away. Now you can put any two numbers in there and you do exactly the same thing. I just happen to pick out nice easy ones that worked for quickly calculating it on the board. Yeah? So like whatever we end up with on the left, like after dividing by 5, you take that's what we put as the exponent for um, 10. You take 10 to that power. So if you could do it, it could be fractional. You could take 10 to the 2.86 power, whatever it comes out to be. Again, just plug that in your calculator and it will give you, and then multiply that answer by 10 at the end and get your distance. So there's one for you to look at on there. Again, it won't come back up on the exam, but I do want you to have seen it, seen it once here. Questions? Questions? All right. All right. So here's our cosmic distance scale. Um, start off with radar ranging. That doesn't get us out very far in the universe, about out to one astronomical unit. So it's worthwhile for measuring distances to Mars, distance to Venus, you know, anything within the very inner part of the solar system. It doesn't help us very far out. We can't set a radar signal out to the nearest star and wait for it to come back to get measurements. Stellar parallax is the one we've talked about before. That's looking at the position of a nearby star from two different points in the Earth's orbit six months apart. That star will appear to shift its position. So in January, it'll look like it's out in this direction in the sky. In July, six months later, it'll look like it's in this direction. Now that's greatly magnified. The angle is incredibly tiny. That's why we weren't able to measure it until well, within the last 200 years we were finally able to make that measurement because it is so small. But we do see that very slight shift. That works out to about 200 parsecs, maybe about 600 light years. And stars within that we can actually get reasonably accurate measurements for. Beyond 600, 600 light years is not much. Um, sounds like it's forever, right? 600 light years, light has traveled for 600 years. But our galaxy is about 100,000 light years across. 600 light years out of 100,000 light years, not very much. So very, very small amount. So we've got to get out further. We've got to try to get out further. And spectroscopic parallax helps us do that. Spectroscopic parallax can get us out to about 10,000 parsecs, about 30,000 light years. We're still stuck within our galaxy, but we're measuring a big chunk of our galaxy now. So spectroscopic parallax is really good for measuring stars within our own galaxy. And maybe some of the very closest, the brightest stars in the very closest galaxies when you can actually you know, separate them out. You can actually start to get to that point. But it's still all very close to us in terms of, again, You've got, what did I say, about 30,000 light years? Boy, we're really getting out. We're covering all the whole universe, right? No. Universe is about 15, uh, 13 point something billion light years in size. So 13 billion light years, and we've got 30,000 of those 13 billion. So we haven't even begun to make the first, first little jump out. We have other methods coming that we'll be adding in the coming chapters to kind of help us get further out in the universe. But the other thing to see in this is that everything depends on the previous steps. So you need stellar parallax in order to figure out how this HR diagram works, to figure out where the stars exactly lie. We need to know the distances of some of the stars to find out where the main sequence is. We actually have to essentially calibrate this diagram. So any errors here lead to errors here. 
and we'll see with the future steps. We need this. So errors tend to build on each other. So when you see people talking about distances in astronomy, they're not being measured down to the nearest you know, inch, millimeter. They're not being measured to the nearest light year. Now, you might say that a star is, you know, even some of the nearer ones, you might say, oh, it's about 2,000 light years, but that might be a couple hundred either way. That's how accurate we know them. Still, if you're only a few hundred out of a couple thousand, it's not horrible, but it's not precise. We do not have precise measurements for any of these distances once you get beyond the very closest stars where we can get a really, really accurate parallax. And the problem is, again, everything builds on each other. So if you have a little bit of an error here, you know, 5% error here all of a sudden becomes 10 and 15% error, and then the next step, it might be 20 and 30. You end up getting things where you talk about, well, it's a billion light years either way. It's still a good estimate. It's the best we can possibly do. But it's not, they're not precise in terms of measurements like we're used to. Question. question. Yeah, go ahead. Um, with NASA not in business, mm-hmm. Well, NASA is still, NASA is not using the shuttles, but there's still, so there are probes that are still going out. So they are still sending probes out. They are still satellites in Earth's orbit that are making measurements. They're just not in the, in the shuttle business essentially anymore. The shuttles, the shuttles are gone. So in terms of like resupplying the space station, there are other countries, other companies that they're now working on. And probably technically, that's really a better thing than NASA being a shuttle service to get cargo up to the space station. you know, they need to work on, they can work on other things, so. But yeah, there are, they are still doing, they are still doing it, and other countries are still putting up satellites and observing and doing some of this, you know, in order terms to measure really good parallaxes. You know, there are programs to measure really good parallaxes, to re- measure, to measure distance, and to improve those numbers that I kind of gave you. You know, they're not great, we're try- they're better than they were uh, 50 years ago, and 50 years from now they'll probably be better yet. But they still won't be able to say that this galaxy, that the Andromeda galaxy or whatever, is you know 2,515,216 light years away. Well, you're not going to get to that kind of that kind of accuracy. Now, one problem with spectroscopic parallax is that it depends on really where the star falls. And if you recall, there was that red giant region over there. So. There's actually a, there was a red giant region over here, and there were lots of stars up there. So if I were to measure the spectral class and use that to say, okay, well then it's so bright. You know, we have this star that is at this temperature range, about 4,000 degrees. That means it's this much less bright than the sun. Well, that really depends on is it really on the main sequence? How do we tell if it's on the main sequence, or is it in a red giant phase, or a red supergiant phase? And what there are is there are what they've uh, added another dimension essentially to the spectral classification, which are classifying the luminosities or luminosity classes. And there is using the Roman numerals, a Roman numeral five is a dwarf star. That's essentially a star like the sun, something on the main sequence. They give you all of them there. I'm just going to have you worry about the cu- a couple of them. Threes are giant stars, and ones are super giant stars. Yes, there's a two and a four in between them. There's fewer stars in those ranges. The most, the most ones that you typically see are either dwarf stars, which are you know, 90% of all the stars. That's the main sequence right here, all the stars that fall there. The rest are giants and supergiants up in this range. So you have to be able to tell when you're looking at that. That makes a big difference. If you're looking right here, that's about 1 100th the brightness of the sun if it's a main sequence star or so. If it happens to be a giant star, it might be 100 times the brightness of the sun. That's a little bit of a difference in your measurement, right? If it's either 100 times fainter or 100 times brighter, that's 10,000 times difference. That's a little bit more than the little bit off that I was mentioning earlier. And if you went up to a supergiant star, it might be 10,000 times brighter than the sun. So you have to be able to tell the difference between the brightnesses, where it actually falls on the main sequence. And without knowing the distance, right, you need to know the distance in order to be able to tell that normally, the other thing you can look at is the spectrum. 
And that's what's kind of showing here is looking at how wide the spectral lines are. These two spectra are exactly the same temperature. So you see the same pattern of lines. All the same elements would be being excited. There's this line. There it is. There's this line. There's this line. And there's that line. They all match up. It's exactly the same spectrum. So you would classify that as a K. Does it give me a breakdown? K1? No, just a K star. So just say a K class star somewhere in this range. So it would fall somewhere in that range. But what we see is when we see a main sequence star, the lines are much broader. They're wider in a main sequence star. As you work your way up here towards the top, towards the supergiant stars, you get much narrower lines. So you can tell where it lies in the luminosity section by how wide the lines are. So not only do you look at the spectrum and say that that is a K star, it's a little bit cooler than the sun, but you also look at how wide the lines are and say, well, that's a supergiant star, or that's a main sequence star, or in between those, you'd have something a little bit wider than this and a little bit narrower than this, that would be a giant star. You can use that then to determine whether you're, you, what part of the, of the HR diagram you're using. So whether you're using this luminosity, or this luminosity, or this luminosity, depends really on looking at how wide the spectral lines are. Why do they get different? Why do we have such narrow lines in the supergiant stars? Well, supergiant stars are giant, right? Supergiant. They are very thin atmospheres. So their atmospheres get much thinner as you get further out. And they are, the particles are not bumping into each other as much. When the particles bump into each other and collide, they tend to make the lines wider. When there's very little collisions in a much more diffuse atmosphere, you get very, very narrow, well-defined lines. So it tells us sort of how dense and how compact the star's atmosphere is, even though the temperatures are exactly the same. But it's one way we can use to actually use the, to use spectroscopic parallax. We have to know not only how hot the star is, but we have to know what class it is. Is it a main sequence star? Is it a giant star? Or is it a supergiant star? All right, let's see. So here's an example just showing a couple different stars, all about the same temperature, right in the K, K class range of 4,000 and some degrees. But there's a big difference in how big they are. There's a big difference in how bright they are. So we can actually distinguish between these by looking at the spectral lines. There's not a big difference in temperature, right? OK, 600 degrees. But percent-wise, it's relatively small. But in terms of luminosity, this is less than the luminosity of the sun, about a third to 4,000 times. So big difference. You know, a factor of 12,000 is you go from there to there. So quite, quite a big difference there. And a factor of you know, almost a couple hundred in terms of radius. So the sizes of the star are changing as well. So that's the kind of thing we have to be able to take into account because to just classify those stars, they're all the same. If you just look at their spectral lines and measure the strengths of their lines, they're all going to be classified as a, in this case, a K2 star. So somewhere in that K, in the K range of the spectral classification sequence. No. No, just, just pr primary the letters. The, the numbers just break down within you know, finer divisions of it. So I, don't, I won't give you anything specific. As long as you know the main sequence, the general sequence of it, that's fine. So, and then again, and like I said, in these, the, the one, the three, and the five, I'm not going to ask you anything about the twos and the fours. They're there, they exist, but I'm not going to get into that kind, that much detail. Essentially, they're things that are in between. You know, they're not quite, they're bigger than a giant, but they're not quite as big as a supergiant, so there's something somewhere in between. All right. And the last thing, last thing we can determine, I've talked about distances and temperatures and all that. The last thing we can determine is masses. This is the hardest one to get. Distances are hard in astronomy, masses are even harder. So in order to determine masses, you, can't, you can determine the distance of any star that you can get a spectrum of with spectroscopic parallax. In terms of determining the mass, it's a lot harder because you can't determine this mass of any star directly. You have to have something orbiting around it. 
The only way we can measure or weigh the stars is by using their gravity and then how they are pulling on other objects. So what we see in some cases are uh, binary stars, stars where there's two stars orbiting around each other. And that's sort of the image there, that first image up there in the blue is showing a couple of stars orbiting around each other. And here's what you'd actually see if you looked at it through a, a telescope. Right? Back in 1948 you saw a star and a star up here. Seven years later in 55 you saw a star and this one had moved a little bit of the way around it. Five years later it's moved a little bit further away around it. And it would continue that process until you get back around to the mid-1980s and you're back around to where you started. So you, there are some stars, there are visual binary stars where you can actually see where you can actually see the stars moving. So you can actually see both stars. Those are nice and easy. You can actually track out the orbits. It might take you 50 years to get a full orbit. Right? You can't rush them. You can't speed up. You know, go faster. But it can. You just got to sit there and wait for it to physically make its loop around. And then you can measure how long it takes it to go around. You can see how far it is away. If you know the distances, you can then figure out how far that really is. How many AUs, how many astronomical units apart are they? And you can then use that to determine the masses. And what you use is uh, the sum of the two masses is equal to their distance between them cubed divided by the period squared. Now if you recall we had Kepler's third law said that a cubed and p squared are equal. Anybody remember it? Right? That was too far too long ago, right? Okay. That was Kepler's third law. It just said that there was a relationship between the semi-major axis, how far a planet was away from the sun, and its period, how long it took to go around once. So what we find now is that there is a relationship between these two, but it actually depends on the mass of the object, or both objects. In the case of the sun, well, if we do these in the right units, and that mass is just the mass of the sun, which is one, right? Sun is one everything, one solar mass, one solar radius, one solar luminosity. So it kind of disappears when we look at it in Kepler's third law. But here now we can take it out and use it and determine how far apart they are, how many AUs apart they are. We can determine how many years it takes them to go around. And we can then get a calculation and determine the mass in terms of the mass of the sun. So we can actually get a direct measurement of masses that way. The other types that we see, there's a visual binary. Those are, those are the rare, those are rare kinds because you really have to be able to see. There's also a spectroscopic binary where you can't see the two stars. They're too close together. Okay, so all we see is one star. We don't have the resolution even with the most powerful telescopes to separate them into two stars. But we can see that the spectrum is shifted to the red here. A little while later it's shifted to the blue. And if you kept watching that over a period of years, you'd see them shifting back and forth. And you'd actually be seeing the brighter star is primarily what you're seeing. And you're seeing its lines being shifted as it moves around in its orbit. So you can actually measure the orbits that way and get a measurement of the masses. So if you can see two, two different lines in the spectrum, you can actually make measurements that way. The last one you can use is an eclipsing binary. Eclipsing binary is when a star passes right in front of each other. Uh, th those are rare as well. These are by far the most common, easiest to see. These are rare because everything has to be lined up just right. So in order to see that, you have your orbit. Where's our orbit? There's a star with something orbiting around it. Okay, if it's doing, going like this, we're never going to see that as, we'd see that maybe as a visual binary if it's far enough away from us. If it's too close and we see it just as one, you might see it as a spectroscopic binary. But in order to see it as an eclipsing binary, it can't be tilted like this. It can't be tilted like this. You have to have that star going right in front of it. It means you have to have it precisely flattened. So you have to have it precisely like that in order to be able to see it. So if it's tilted a little bit, 
sort of like an eclipse. You're not able to see, you won't be able to see, you won't see an eclipse every month because the moon's orbit is tilted by a little bit. Well, unless you have that precise, and in fact to a tiny fraction into arc second accuracy, you're not going to get an eclipsing binary. You're not going to get an eclipsing binary. But when you do, you can watch the light from the star dim as the darker star passes in front of the brighter star. You watch the light dim and you can then measure a period that way. So again, it's all about measuring the period, measuring the semi-major axis, and giving us a way to measure the masses of the stars. And planets, yes, planets are actually detected this way too. We're using this method to detect planets. We've gotten to the accuracy in the measurements where we can do not even just a star dimming it where it's very significant, where you can actually go out and see it. If you go out and look at Algol in Perseus, you can actually watch when it dims and you can physically see how much fainter it gets. Um, other ones, you, others you could not. The planetary one, the planet ones would be much, much smaller of a change. Now let me see what else I had. Let me go over those. I'll give you the main sequence one here and then we're already out so I'm going to go ahead and stop and give you your break after this one and then we'll come back and do lab. Um, stellar masses, really the mass tells where you're going to be on the main sequence. So once we get that main sequence calibrated it's kind of another way to estimate the masses of the stars. That if you see a star here and it's on the main sequence you can tell that these stars down here are much lower mass than the mass of the sun. These stars up here might be 5, 10, 20, 50 times the mass of the sun. So the mass tells us where it's going to lie on the main sequence and as we'll talk about in the next chapter when stars form it tells us where they'll end up. So if a star is forming with 10 times the mass of the sun it will eventually land on the main sequence someplace over here. So the mass tells us kind of somewhere where it'll be. Um, this is really, we're almost done with the chapter. The only thing I have left is that one chart on the distribution of the masses. I want to take a little bit more time on that so I'm going to hold that off till Wednesday. And then Wednesday we'll go back and I'm going to do a little bit more. In fact we're going to make, I'll make an HR diagram for you up on the board. I'm going to go through all the steps and show you that. You're going to make one in class today, but yay. So questions? Questions, questions? No, no, no. Alrighty. All right, well, take a break here and I'll get the stuff ready for lab and we'll get that started in a few minutes.